Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. How you doing? So when you're hearing this, it'll be two days after the election, which um, I'm actually recording this on a Tuesday. I'm here with Myra Shear, and she was very, very generous to come on the show with me today. She, um, the reason we're talking about her is because of the Studio 54 show that is closing on November 8th at the Brooklyn Museum. But before we get to her, I just want to say thanks for listening, okay? Did you hear about what's going on with the Wall of Lies? Uh, today it got taken down. Um, Tom and Phil are going back to uh, put it up. And if you haven't seen it and heard about it, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. And we did, we, we installed a wall of 20,000 lies on Lafayette Street at the corner of Crosby. It's gotten a lot of press. There's a lot of stuff written about it. And uh, it's gone through a bunch of phases and some vandalism and stuff, but uh, it's been reported around all over the world and everything else. So anyway, I, I, uh, I implore you to check it out. It's and uh, one of the artists is Phil Bueller, who happens to be my husband. And that's how I met Tom originally. But anyway, uh, so go to radiofrobrooklyn.org and go donate some money, okay? You know, we, we really need all the help we can get right now, especially in this climate. Jesus Christ. Well, if anything is different from that climate, it is uh, Studio 54. And I'm here with Myra Shear who was hired, like you were hired really quickly. You were hired like right away by Steve, right? When you went there, is that right? Sorry, Lisa, fake news. I was not hired right away. I, I went there as a guest, like the first week it opened, and then was just under the radar as a regular guest for the first two years. And it was the last year of Stephen Ian's reign. That's when I worked there. Did, did it did it get written? You know, I've had and um, if for for listeners of the show, I've had Anthony Hayden guest who wrote uh, the Last Party, which is a seminal book on Studio Fifty Four. Did he write that in your book, or where did, is has that been written? That missing. I'm glad we're clearing it up. Did I get that from somewhere? Oh, I don't know, but Anthony did say I was from Atlanta, and I'm from Savannah. 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 I mean, wouldn't I'm. I'm from Savannah, not Atlanta. Bless his heart. Well, anyway, I um, I want I want my listeners to know about this show, okay? Because it's only up until uh, November eighth. It got re uh, re or reopened. I, as you know, I'm as you may know, I'm selling Studio Fifty Four T-shirts. I was selling them there the last night. Uh, in, in the first and last night, the show is open to the public, and then it reopened recently uh, over the summer. And so you've had your chance, okay? So fucking get there. It's open a few nights before November eighth. It's a really historical, important show. Would you Would you agree with that, Myra? Absolutely. And it's when you say you were there the first and last night, it opened March eleventh. And so that was right as COVID was erupting. I know. And, and, you know, I was like intervened on by a few loving people that said, please don't go. 
Really? And there was there was fifteen hundred people there. Oh so wow! This literally, was the last party that you could have for who knows how long. So I wound up going because I was meeting a lot of people there. Sure. And sure. we had that sense that, um, yeah. it, but we weren't wearing masks then. Yeah, but you could tell, right? You could tell. Well, when they played the last dance, we, we, I felt like this is going to be the last party. For wow. For a long, for years, could be a year, could be longer, right? Well, it was I, a weird vibe. I will say that. And it was sort of ironic, right? That Studio 54 and that was all, you know, like the show and all that. Were you involved in um, the curators, Matthew LeBlanc, Yablonsky, everybody, but were you involved in creating, curating the show? Were you involved in it? I definitely have a lot of stuff in it. Uh-huh. And we've had Matthew on uh, the radio show I do on Sirius XM with mm -hmm. the doorman Mark Benneke we've had Matthew on twice and doing the radio show we're in our coming up on our 10th year next wow. year 10 years so I really do have a PhD at Studio 54 but I think Matthew has even done more research and uncovered stuff that Mark and I didn't even know wow so kudos to Matthew and I don't think anybody could have done better, more brilliant job than what he chose to put in the show, because it is it, it, it is a time that very much so everybody wants to go back to it because it was such a hope, a time of hope, and that good was coming out of the bankruptcy situation of New York City at the time. So New York didn't have a great vibe, but out of it sprung this gathering of artists to dance that was pretty much unprecedented from all genres of life from all different walks of life from new york city and you know these two kids at the time from brooklyn were the you know the wizards behind it the masterminds behind it wow you know i've uh, read it's been written that it uh, it happened from the time between the time of the invention of the pill and before aids that I think Diane von Furstenberg said that. Yeah, but, which is sort uh, of is sort of interesting, right? There was a certain freedom. there was a it, it was the pill where women were liberated, and before AIDS had a name, that was when you know, and gay gay men and women were li liberated. So definitely, that's one of the most famous quotes. As is Andy Warhol, who said. It was a dictatorship at the door and a democracy on the dance floor. <laughs> you know, um, Myra, I'm afraid that some of these kids may not know that how significant Studio 54 is. So it, in the beginning, I wanted to read to them just a few sentences written by Bob. And I didn't even know how to pronounce his name. Colicella? I said it right. So he was, he was, well, he was a regular there and he reported on Studio 54 and he was the editor of Interview Magazine, probably somebody that you know, right? Yeah. yeah and I remember Bob and he was a, definitely with Andy Warhol. He was part of that entourage and he wrote a lot of uh, the stuff that Andy may get a trip, uh, maybe was attributed to as well. But he's a genius with words, Bob Colicello, and he yes. has a great take on it. 
So here's what he said, guys, so you can understand how important this is, because if you don't know, you really should, okay? This is a really important part of New York history. It's an important part, I think, of world history, social history. Uh, Bob wrote Studio Fit, and this is in 2017. That's another really important part, is that Studio 54, I want to ask you about this too, Myra, as I'm interrupting myself, I realize. Um, but you, um, I have noticed that Studio 54 keeps coming back in history and coming back sort of even as a stronger legend or a more powerful legend. Didn't they, didn't they just open like a, a record label or some, you guys are all in an office or in a, in a building. What's going on with Studio 54 now? It's still incredibly relevant or more relevant than ever. I think the record company is by the person who has the trademark. It, uh -huh. it, yeah, it, it's a long saga. I mean, when, when Studio 54 happened, again, it was, I moved there because I was from Georgia. Jimmy Carter was elected president. And I figured it'd be a banner year for Georgians. And at that point, you know, um, disco music, I mean, we, you know, we were coming off rock and roll, very cerebral mm -hmm. rock and roll. And, and I think my generation or I went to the University of Georgia, we protested. Um, I was in college when they killed students for protesting in Ohio. And I think we felt like we were we had a voice and we were able to stop a war. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. we were, you know, coming like with a lot of hope and, and, mm -hmm. and a lot of, um, you know, just that momentum going and, and, you know, the songs from that era were phenomenal, you know, yeah, and music was blue. great. Yeah. yeah music. And we, we had a voice. And then when studio 54 opened up, um, it attracted rock and rollers. It attracted disco people. It attracted all walks of life, all artists. Mm -hmm. And it really was a, a fertile ground at that time in New York City because New York was affordable then. Yeah, right. If you didn't mind living in uh, a really, if you if you weren't afraid of crime. Well, it, I got a place on the Upper East Side that I still have. Really? Very reasonable, you know, back then. Yeah, so, no, I, I had an apartment on 11th Street. I split three ways and I was paying 125 bucks. It's a it was a different time, obviously. But let me read this thing because I want I want to educate my listeners. I got to know what's going on. So Studio 54 was more than it. This is Bob Colt, whatever. Studio 54 was more than a disco. It was a sociological phenomenon and a historical event, which is why it continues to inspire essays, books, TV shows, documentaries, and feature films 40 years after it opened. It was something that could have only happened when it did and where it did, New York in the late 70s. Getting in was no easy task, so if you did, you felt as much of a star as the movie stars, rock stars, sports stars, political stars, fashion stars, and society stars that were everywhere you turned. So I think that really, um, that really sums it up. And it also talks about how it was really hard to get into, which was kind of a defining aspect of the club, right? 
Well, you know, I just did a quote for the Brooklyn Museum that was projected on a wall. And if I may, I'll, I'll read please, it. Please, please yeah. do. On the dance floor at Studio 54, I could dance next to a drag queen, a kid from Queens, a descendant of a queen, and all of us were equal. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. so that was Studio 54. It was a dictatorship at the door. You had to be able to get in. But getting in wasn't about your pocketbook. It wasn't about your vibe. I mean, it was about your vibe. It was about your energy. I mean, yes, it helped that you were dressing hip, slick, and cool. But, um, but once you got in, there was no A-list or B-list. There was no celebrities that were separate. Celebrities didn't even need security guards then. Very it, good. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say um, what I like about the way I think Steve has, Steve, Steve Rubell, who I'm sure is somebody who we know is somebody that you were very close to, but I think he described it as a salad, right? That's what I, was it him or Ian? He described it as a salad. So I really like that idea. So it's it's about the doorman and you did the door sometimes picking the right mix of people. Like if there were too many redhead girls in their 20s, no one else was I, I wasn't going to get in because they already had five of those, which I love. You know, I mean, I love that idea of and it, and it actually transcends the thought of snobbiness and exclusivity. It's about the right mix of people. And that was something that I learned doing research on this project. So I think that's really interesting. And you had the opportunity to make that salad yourself, right? I never picked the people. I was in the inner door. So once uh, in the, the outside door, like the doorman like Mark Benneke would pick, I was sitting next to the cashier and I would have the guest list. So if you if you were comped, I would comp you. Uh -huh. Or if you had to pay, then I would take your ticket. Plus, I would answer the phone. You know, so the inner door was a whole uh -huh. nother story. Uh -huh. You know, it's fascinating to me. I think we moved to New York maybe around the same time. And um, I, I um, was this kind of shy girl from who had just moved from Syracuse University from the suburbs even though I'd studied art and all that stuff. And um, I just want to find out, like, I wanted to find out about you and your upbringing and your background a bit, because I can't imagine, like, you you seem so char charming, frankly, charming and self-possessed. And um, I just can't imagine having the wherewithal at that age to deal with that and that, you know, little bit of life experience. So I'm just curious about what you, you're from. Where did you say again? I'm from Savannah, Georgia. Savannah, Georgia, right. A swing state. It's high. It's in the news right now. So you're some, so you're like a 20, early 20s girl from Savannah, Georgia, moving to New York. And like, how, how did you get involved with all that? Like, what were you like? What were, where were you? What was it like where you grew up? Well, I grew up in Savannah and I really pretty much wasn't a very traveled person, but my mom and was from New York. My father was from Savannah. So I would go to New York as a, as a little girl and it scared me. The city really scared me and I wasn't a very city person. 
at that time. You know, I would buy Italian ices and there would be ch chunks of cherries and I thought it was dirt. <laughs> so, um, when, and when I was in college, um, and, and, you know, I grew up Jewish in Savannah. Yeah, I was wondering if you were Jewish. I was going to ask you that. There are, are there a lot of, I'm a Jew too. Are there a lot of Jews there? There, in Savannah, there's like, there at the time, there were maybe about a thousand Jewish families and about three, there's three synagogues, but it's a real tight knit group then. Mm -hmm. Like most, it's like, and, and, and when I think back on it, you know, I remember the Ku Klux Klan protesting in front of movie theaters. Wow. And, wow. And, and I also got accused of killing Jesus. Mm. I did. Well, you know, I could see. I mean, it, that's a misunderstanding, but understandable. Yeah, I was called dirty Jew. I mean, so oh. there, there was a certain, um, you know, growing up with a prejudice that um, that was typical to the in the South. I, I, I remember when I came to visit in New York and they would the TV on TV, they'd go Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. I'm going, oh, they acknowledge Hanukkah. Because wow. you know, it was like we, we were invisible in many ways. Wow. So um, you went to college there? I went to the University of Georgia and I, and I grew up with three brothers, one uh, older, two younger. So I knew football. Uh-huh. Were you athletic? N no, I was not athletic. Hmm. Um, no, I, I was an artist. I, I just took to, that's that's really what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an artist. I just didn't know what kind of artist. And, you know, but but I was raised in the generation of you're either good a good girl or a slut. Mm -hmm. And there which side? Really and so you were, let's say, a slut then? Let's say I was I, in. If you're not a good in the, girl, in the, in, just because there's only two options, we don't even think like that anymore. But I mean, or were you a good girl? I tried to be a good girl until I went to the University of Georgia and did acid. Oh, acid and slut together. Okay, well, whatever. Well, but, um, no, but you, you were your parents. What were your parents like? I mean, my parents were very loving. Uh, you know, my, my mother lived for her children and my father, you know, he was the, he was a father that never left and they had their trials and tribulations. They, they owned a kosher style deli. Oh, and, wow. You know, and it was like, I, if you knew me, I could get you pistachio nuts or a cherry smash or a root beer, you know, and then they went bankrupt. Oh, when, wow. When was, yeah. Right at the archway of adolescence. So, wow. That was traumatic. So but what happened? It, what happened? I mean, did you? Said, what? I said, my mother said they spent too much money on fixtures. I don't, other than that. So did know. that did that affect your life? Like, were you living like in a like a really nice, you know, in a upper middle class life? And then all of a sudden you didn't you didn't have things was did that happen to you? Well, that's a good question, but no, we, we were, well, we were in a house and we were in, my parents were in the process of bricking in the carport. So, so my two brothers could share a room and one brother could have his own room and I could have my own room. So I was mm -hmm. a where I needed my own room, but they ran out of money. So they couldn't afford to brick the carport in. And so it was like, there was a lot of shame, like everybody knew. Oh, because it was a small group of Jews. Yeah. So I would say it didn't color my life. It took the color out of my life because mm. it definitely was hard.
and um, and I felt you know shame, and somehow you know it, it was we didn't talk about it. Okay, I, yeah. Because here's the thing: I'm imagining that there's a certain aspect of toughness in you, where you really can handle a lot. And I mean, well, now you know. Now, of course, you have you know you obviously you must have it now, but. I mean, as a young woman, it seems like you you must have been able to like handle, maybe embarrass, not let anybody in or something like that, like handle whatever anybody threw at you. Is that true or did that come from that? Or what? how did you handle the shame? I shut down. What do you mean? You got depressed? That, that means I, I, I just got armored. Mm. You know, I remember, yeah, when, when I would go with my friends to a movie and they would cry, I couldn't cry. Hmm. But, you know, I, I just, I knew, I felt like something was wrong with me. But again, this is hindsight. Yeah, was, right. Yeah, and, and, and I just, I shut down. These are developmental years. These are very, so what happened when you moved to New York or how did you wind up moving to New York? Well, my roommate, at the time, um, we just we just were aimless. We mm -hmm. were lost. Your roommate we, from college, then? We we after college, um, you know, I lived in Atlanta for a little while, and you know, all I knew is that I didn't want to be a teacher, mm -hmm. an and, art teacher. I know, I I hear you. <laughs> but at the same time, now I I look back and I was blocked from really processing the true desires of my heart. I, I didn't know. What? So so uh -huh. I was I was lost, and 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 I you know at that time we thought drugs were a door of perception. You know, adults mm -hmm. door mm -hmm. of perception. Right. But for me, you know, it became a prison. But but at that time, um, you know, I was pretty aimless. My had a boyfriend that went to Kathmandu, so I went to Kathmandu. Oh wow! A lot of my friends after college. That's what we. That's what we did. We traveled. Wow! Wow! So that's that, really ballsy. I would never have had the balls to do that. Well, if you had Valium, you would have. <laughs> <laughs> did you? Did your parents? Were your parents okay with that? No, they didn't know, Lee. So How did they not know? Not. See, that's the thing. My parents would have been like all over that. How did they not know? I don't get that. How could they not know? Because I, I was in Atlanta. I wasn't really living there and, and they didn't want to know. So they did, you didn't have to call in once a week like I did or anything like that? I didn't have to, but but also I was codependent at the same time. You know, I was very into pleasing my parents too and to be a good girl. You know, so all of a sudden drugs, drugs are very, are not compatible with good girls. So, so I kind of, you know, I was traveling the world. I, I did a, came back, I lived in Boston and that kind of prepared me for New York, but I had no goal. Like what my brother, older brother, he saw To Kill a Mockingbird. He knew he wanted to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. It became a lawyer. I, I really was sort of aimless and, um, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we're supposed to be liberated but I didn't even know what that meant. You know, I really didn't get it. I didn't understand right. it because a lot of my friends were virgins when they got married back then. And also being from um, Georgia, I mean, that's a very conservative kind of environment, no? We wore, the year I went to University of Georgia was the first year that women were allowed to wear pants on campus. Ooh. 
Ooh. <laughs> Pants. No jeans, though. Jeans came later, but, but, and, and we had curfews and the, the men, the boys did not. So did you move to New York with your roommate then? So we, I moved with Suzanne. We just felt like, let's just, you know, do this and go to New York. I thought we'd be there a year, but mm -hmm. let me just say prior to that, mm -hmm. I was on, on spring break in New York with, the, um, with the, somebody that went to University of Georgia that was from New York. And I was in the Washington Square and there was a fairy princess roller skating around Washington Square and touched me with a magic wand. And I'm like freaked out. I said to my girlfriend, <laughs> who is that? And she goes, that's Rollerina. I mean, you know her? She goes, oh, yeah, everybody knows Rollerina. Rollerina just sk skates around the village. And I knew right then that this, maybe the city was for me. Maybe I would like to live here because Rollerina would have been institutionalized in Georgia. Yeah, that was, I felt that same way when I came to New York. I mean, I had my own brand of weird and um, I was like, you can't be weird here. This is amazing. It, it, it was, it was really, it was, it's, and it still has that. I think it still has that for a lot of people. I, I do too. I mean, I just, there's such a, it attracts such a creative group of people you know, that, that again, you know, the best mm -hmm. to be the best of both worlds is to live in the city and then have a place in the country at the beach, just to, you know, cleanse your energy. Yeah. 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 So how did you wind up, um, get hanging, you were hanging out at studio 54. How did you find your way there and how did you get to know Steve and, and Ian so well? Well, you know, I mean, I've got so many stories about it. But I'm sure you do. I'm one sure. of them, the first time we went there, we, Suzanne and I met this woman at Nicola's in the Upper East Side. It's still here. And she said she was a baroness and she told us about Studio 54 and we got right in with her. Oh, you went with her. Right, right, yeah, right. We went the first week. And then, you know, I, I don't know if we went again a few times, but I do remember one time we went, the next, at, at one point when we went, um, she didn't, we, we didn't get in. And what changed, you know, they either sussed her that she really wasn't a baroness and which we didn't know, but it turned out she was, she did est. So you remember S? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Which is like landmark kids. If, if you've heard of landmark, it's a version of est. Our this, version. I didn't know it was a version of, okay. So oh, I, yeah. yeah, Suzanne and I went to one of the S seminars because Bernadette was trying to get us in we didn't like it you know it, mm -hmm. it definitely you know we'd rather smoke pot but right. um but so she got us in and then another time because i knew a friend of mine worked in the white house and i actually he worked for rosalind carter he was really there. somebody he, like you knew from georgia or something yeah and yeah. It, when i worked on a movie with him that's another thing i did in savannah i worked on a movie so i met people from new york and uh that was another reason that I, I wanted to move up there, but I went to the inaugural ball, you know, so, with, so that was a pretty cool way to start out. Wow. So anyway, when I told him about studio 54, he wanted to see if he wanted to come, but I, I didn't, I didn't think I couldn't get him in, but all of a sudden I've got this assignment. He was coming with a bunch of people that worked in the white house. Oh my and God. So, I called Steve, Steve Rubell at Studio 54. I, I actually called Studio 54. I never thought Steve yeah, right. speak to Steve. So I said, I'd like to get these people in from the White House because I thought 
course they're going to want people in from the White House. And they were pretty heavy hitters. The, it was um, Rick Hutto and Jim Free. I forgot what Jim did. So I don't think he's in Brooklyn. He may not hear this. But, <laughs> then so we went to go to get in and Jim had his niece with him. It was a lot of pressure on the Southern girl. And I go up. Our names are on. Oh, oh, wait a minute. I left out part of the story. I left. I told, asked this receptionist at studio. I told her the names. She said, I'll have Steve call you back. And I'm like, yeah, right. Right. Call me back. Oh, my God. Call me back. And I'm like, a, you know, he said, who's from the White House and what did they do? He said, OK, they're on the list. So wow. there are at the door and there's Mark standing on the fire hydrant and go, hi, we're on the list. Ignores me, Lisa doesn't mm. even look at me. So mm. I gently touch him to get his attention because I'm sure he wants to let me in because we're on the list and we're from the White House. And he goes, don't touch me. And I'm crushed. And I look at the faces of my friends and I feel like I failed my country. I'm like, Ooh. I don't know what to say, you know, so, <laughs> oh my God. So we just kind of slink back and we as we get away from the door i see steve uh-huh and i walk up to steve i said steve you know remember you said we could be on the guest list it's, and he goes who's here from the white house who's here and he lets gets us all in oh my god that's so for, fortunate that, fortuitous so whatever so um wow what a relief huh redeemed yes redeemed right. uh, mm -hmm. so then Fast forward to um, my birthday in 1978. I'm at studio. I meet this woman who just moved to New York. Her name is Shay. And she was a Playboy centerfold. We clicked. We became friends. Now, at this point, everybody that worked at Studio 54 behind the scenes pretty much stayed there. They had no idea when they started working there what it was going to be. They, they, mm -hmm. Nobody could have imagined it. And so there was a woman who did the private parties. She and her husband worked there. I think he did lights, mm -hmm. but they finally said, we ha we've had enough. So there became a job opening and my friend Shay got the job opening. Uh. So now we're talking 1979. In December, Ian and Steve were busted. Mm -hmm. you know, it was supposed to be like for federal stuff or income tax, but they found drugs. So right. the changed after that bus. So Shay gets this job, my friend, through her contact, she knew who knew Steve Rubell. She gets the private party booking, but she had enough. She was the first person that came in the front door. She knew how powerful studio was, and she just wanted a job that had benefits. She wasn't right, 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 right. So when they when she was working, she realized this was twenty four seven. I, I can't work twenty four seven. Look, I, can I get an assistant? Can I get somebody to help me? And so I was going to move to LA then. So uh -huh. I was in between, I was thinking of moving to LA. So long story short, she tells me, would you help me be an assistant? And, and, and she set me up to be interviewed. So you want to hear about the interview? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So just know I had no resume. There was no ad in the New York times. I walked in and I thought I was going to be her assistant, but it turns out it was going to be Steve and Ian's assistant. So I walked in the door of their office. Ian is sitting at a desk and he looks like somebody I dated from high school. So <laughs> I felt relaxed, right? Not like I knew him. And I saw some activity out of the corner of my left eye. And I looked and it's Steve Rubell with his mother. 
And, oh, you know, Lisa, you see, they're two nice Jewish boys with their mother. Well, I can see that. I mean, as as a as a Jew myself, I could see like having somebody's mom in there going like, like they, you're not they're not going to be intimidating with no one can be no man who's hanging out with his mother can be intimidating. I just felt like, you know, I felt at home. And I just, I, it was just like that easy. And, and I got the job and it was going to be a temporary job, but it never was. And so for the first maybe four or five months, I was Stephen Ian's assistant. So I worked there during the day. And then Yejan, the, the hostess at night, she left. And then they needed me at night because they trusted me. Mm -hmm. I, I was like, I, I didn't know what a troubleshooter was, but mm -hmm. there was probably some corruption at the door. But mm -hmm. with me there, I was going to, you know, I didn't even Handle. realize, but I, I was mm -hmm. kind of stopped. So I, became, I worked there day and night for the, the last year they were there. Wow. Wow. You know, I mean, I'm so interested in like what, what a, there must have been something about you, though, that must have like inspired confidence in them immediately. Like you must have had the wherewithal. I mean, you're obviously smart, but you had to also be really quick on your feet. And I imagine kind of um, not, you know, where you, nothing would upset you kind of, you know, very, you know, what's, there's a word I'm looking for that I'm not going to find. But anyway, so it just seems unflappable, unflappable. Were you unflappable? No, I wasn't unflappable. No. You weren't? You, what, I, what, 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 what do you, what do you think clicked? I mean, I'm just curious. What about well, you? I, it, it was, I can't explain it, but I loved Steve Rubell unconditionally. I, and you, you know, I don't do that with, with everybody. Yeah. I just, he was Stevie. You know, it was like I knew him and, and Ian too. And I mean, I, I never had a bad experience with them. I, uh -huh. I just, and Ian, Ian was this creative genius and, and yeah. he, he was just having a great time. And, 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 and to me, he sort of was amazed that this was all intuitive. It's not like he went to school. He was a lawyer. Right. So, he just knew how to put together his genius was putting together people and creating environments if just for one night mm -hmm. and he, he is like money didn't matter that they, they would just, they had this innovation and creativity that was unprecedented. Mm. And Steve just was this bee charmer, as we say in the South with, with everybody, but it's also, I mean, maybe that would be enough because Steve could fill the house and Ian could create the environment mm -hmm. to wow the people who came in. But Steve also had an innate understanding of how the press worked. Oh, interesting. He knew how to schmooze the press. He knew what an item was. He knew what it wasn't. He, he really um, had wonderful relationships with the press. And it was also, he had power in the city. Yeah, yeah. For sure. For sure. He seems like he was just incredibly likable. Is that right? Well, there's two schools. Uh -huh. <laughs> I definitely 
loved him. And most of the people, we, we have reunions now. We're a very tight-knit group, the people mm. who work there. And we have all gotten together for years through Facebook. But mm. but like, you know, like this weekend, I'm going to a memorial service for one of the one of my um one of my buddies there whose son passed away. So we're we all like family. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and Ian and Steve made it like we were family. And their family came. Their family, like his mother worked there, you know. And and and, and um Ian's sister, you know. They were, they made us family. So it was, it was just an amazing feeling to have that camaraderie. Mm -hmm. But it, I get this feeling like it's, I mean, I guess Steve had a difficult side, obviously. I mean, he had, he must have, he had to have, but it also seems like he, I get the sense there was something almost, he was savvy and smart, but then like just, I don't want to use the word guileless, but very genuine. Like he would feel genuine. Like he, pe like he, he was genuinely like you really felt friendly towards him. Gen like people liked him. I, I, you know, I loved him. He once mm -hmm. said to me, he said, Myra, if I wasn't the other way, I'd marry you. He said, <laughs> he said things like that to me that no one else heard, but they're smart. And, you know, um, the his driver who was also security mm -hmm. guard freddie mm -hmm. i remember when they uh weren't, we weren't sure if they were going to go to jail or not and freddie said to me he said i'll go with him and he meant it wow 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 so people really loved him and took care of him well, so well, people believe me i'm sure he had people yeah that, you know but but he was sometimes brutally honest mm -hmm. sometimes somebody was at the door he would say go to europe for six mm -hmm. months you get a sense of style then maybe you'll come back and you'll get in that's you know, helpful yeah and, and i'm sure that that you know again they had power i mean a, a lot of a-list celebrities wouldn't come in without their publicists because they were afraid what happens if they didn't get in right 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 so that must have been um when the whole you know, I mean, it didn't end suddenly, but there was a demise, like it got sold or whatever. Steve, there was a period where Steve and Ian were consultants and somebody else was running it and stuff. Were you around for that part or? I worked for the second incarnation. I worked for Mark Fleischman mm -hmm. too, but to the point that we're talking about, the magic of Steve and Ian, it's like the space itself was absolutely brilliant. Richie Williamson was a set designer. He designed the moon and the spoon, Scott Bromley, the mm -hmm. architect. He knew the minute he walked in what who the star was, the dance floor. Karen Bacon, she was a, I don't know, you call her a party planner maybe back then, mm -hmm. but all of these people worked with Ian to create this magical club. Now, when Ian's gone, you may still have those people and you have a different owner but the soul was not there. Mm. You could still mm. have the party, you could, but it wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. Because Steve was genuinely friends with Andy Warhol, with Paul Klein, with Liza Minnelli, with Dolly Parton. You know, he was a kid from Brooklyn and he had this open, authentic personality. And, and you know, he went from, 
from being unknown to the cover of Interview Magazine in, in less than a year. Well, wasn't his father like a taxi driver or something like that? Or he was a tennis teacher. A tennis teacher. Right, right. I know it was something very, yeah, you know, I mean, he had no back. He's a real, that is a self-made man. It, it, well, and his brother was a gynecologist, so his mother raised two, two um, you know, very successful boys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and um, Steve was a good tennis player. Yeah, I've, I've read that. I've read that. He's a very talented tennis player. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a skill that you can learn a lot, Comp competition, discipline, physical, you know, uh, ability. So what, what, well, now you are, you have a radio show at Sirius, the uh, Mark and Myra show. Do you want to tell us what's going on now and tell us about the, um, you're working with a uh, charity. Tell us about it. Yeah, I just had a virtual event that was a yoga and meditation for the Felix organization, Own This Way, because the co-founder is Daryl from Run DMC, Daryl McDaniels, mm -hmm. and Sheila Jaffe, who cast the Sopranos. So we actually had Michael Imperioli, who's one of the Sopranos, if you mm -hmm. watched it. Right, last, right, right. Yeah. yeah, and you know, we're facing the election. The election is, is when this is taped, we, we haven't had it yet. But mm -hmm. um, he gave us a calm and abiding guided meditation. So, mm -hmm. the, so we were raising money for the Felix organization because our mission is to enrich the lives of children growing up in the foster care system. And they've been hit really hard by this pandemic. I can't imagine. Yeah, the uncertainty and fear we feel that we may not know the future, sometimes that's their life. Well, that must be, that must be really an, ex, that's, a, that's an excre, extreme group of people to be involved with, I think, right? We, I mean, there's so I, much love. I mean, yeah. Yeah. yeah so but those are children that really, you know, this, um, the, that new show, I wish I had the name in my head, but I don't about that chess champion female. It's a real hit. Anyway. Okay. Queen's Gambit. Yeah, I'm yeah. Just watching it. And I was telling Sheila and, and Amanda, who is our executive director, to please watch it because it's about an orphanage, you know. And um, and so we we're blessed. We have a lot of interaction with the kids. We know them. We've had. Oh, you do. Forum. Yeah, we have a summer camp this mm -hmm. year. They can obviously go to camp. So we did a virtual camp. We have Sheila and, and our village is like our yoga teachers are all volunteer. They are the closest I know to angels on earth and we teach these kids yoga. We actually had Boston casting. They came and give, gave the kids acting lessons. So that's my anchor job. And, and it's, it's something that's, that- That's really what your life is. Let me know if you ever need any art lessons. Okay. That'd be <laughs> Let me know. <laughs> yeah. And then I, the radio show was the vision of Scott Greenstein, you know, who runs mm -hmm. Sirius XM. And he saw this 10 years ago. He saw mm -hmm. on the horizon, like a revival or new disco before anybody else. So he got Mark, who is the doorman to be interested in the show. And then Mark got me and we really thought, you know, we'll do it you know, who knew just for a little while, but you know, we're going on 10 years. And so I do believe it seeded a lot of the interest in. Uh, oh, that makes so much sense. 
So that must have been such an extreme, like before. So like, guys, if you don't know this show, you really got to watch. You got to listen to it. Okay. Which is easy. Mark and Myra show on Sirius FM and FXF, whatever. So you bring, you interview all the people that you knew in those days and you play the music and stuff and you've been doing it since 2011. So did that bring back all those people in your life? Were you in touch with them before you did the show or has it brought them back to you? Well, it's through Facebook. I got in touch with a few of them, but I would see some of them around town. So some of what we call ourselves the class of 54, I was in touch with. But, you know, the main thing that Scott Greenstein did was to get Ian Schrager's approval of, of the whole. Of uh, and, and so because Ian really had shut down like I had shut down when I right, was, uh, right. shut down, didn't want to talk about Studio 54. And you didn't want to do you didn't you, you at that point you were like, I'm sick of this. I want to move on with my life. Is that how you were feeling? No, this was. I hadn't. I mean, in 2011. In 2011, I thought, you know, I don't know if I have time for this. Right, right. Again, I was work full time and I'm into yoga. Like, I don't know if I had time, but I'll give it a shot. Mm -hmm. But slowly he, he, his, Scott had a vision and he created one night only in the actual building of Studio 54. We basically recreated Studio 54. Ian Schrager came, we, we've interviewed him. So this is how I know the story. It was depressing for him. I mean, they had everything. They went to jail. And of course, look what his career couldn't have been better. Yeah, yeah, right. But at that time, you know, it it really was something he didn't want to remember. And when he was there at the recreated Studio 54, he saw in his daughter's eyes the joy. He Mm. saw that we had the moon and the spoon. I mean, we recreated it. And that's when he became open to reliving it. And lo and behold, he did a book. And then Matt Kiernauer and Corey Reeser did the documentary. And then here we have the Halston Netflix series being filmed. I saw right. they're, they're recording. They did a Studio 54. On Are Earth. you a consultant on that? Are you consultant? No. no. No, not a consultant on that. They have I enough. Would... They probably have, well, whatever. But so... they, the consultant on the documentary. And, um, and of mm-hmm. course, I have stuff in the Brooklyn yeah. Museum, which yeah. everybody needs to go to by November 8th. That's right. That's right. So, um, so that changed his mind when he saw the joy it brought to his daughter, which is so cool because, you know, it is a really important part of history. And his daughters are so cool. I mean, they, they, Sophia and Ava, Sophie, but you know, I don't really know them, but, but I, I see sometimes on Instagram and, and they're, you know, I mean, can you imagine? And also the Overingtons, Lisa and Michael Overington work there and they didn't even tell them. And, he, and Michael still works for Ian and they didn't even tell their children they worked for Studio 54 until they were in high school. They came and they said, did you guys work at Studio 54? Because really for 20 years, they didn't talk about it. 20, 30 years. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. So then, so then the radio your radio shows start. Did, were you friends with Mark the whole time until 2011? No. Were you guys in touch? You know, I, I knew Mark, but I, I wasn't friends with them. I was friends with like Patrick Taylor, who was the bartender and some of the others, but, but not like um, we are now. 
I mean, mm-hmm. we just started we, when it was 30 years that like Nancy, who was the bookkeeper, hadn't seen Mark. And when we reconnected, it was a, it was a spiritual experience. It really that, was. That is so that is so cool. I I I mean, after talking to you and doing all the research and stuff like that, it's really funny for me because, you know, I mean, at the time in 2000 or in uh you know, 1978, when I was selling Studio 54 Reject shirts outside, it was just like kind of a fun thing. And, you know, Studio 54 came and went. But I feel like now, because I was around New York in that time, and like, even like, look at this. I mean, I'm, you're, we're on the radio together. I mean, it's amazing. So it's, but it really resonates with me. And you guys, this is really important that, there is, it was, it's a, it's Studio 54 is still kind of alive, isn't it? It's still kind of alive. Like the spirit of that has transcended time. Like in, in a really, really interesting sort of undefinable way, right? Like what made Studio 54 the quality that made it what it was is undefinable. And the way that it's transcended time is undefinable. Does that make any sense? Does yeah, that? It, it's, and again, what we said in the very beginning, it was before AIDS. Right. So, you know, life after AIDS is a, such a different life because again, it, as life will be after COVID for many people. Yeah. That window, when, when we, think about what it was like for those 34, 33 or 34, I think it's 34 months of um, Studio 54. Um, That's what we relive it because it was a hope and it was a liberation. It was a democracy. It was where drag queens could, where gay men were like accepted, not only accepted, but they they were the top echelon. You know, it was like, and women, you know, you, you could, you, it wasn't called a wardrobe malfunction. If you felt like taking your top off and just, you know, flailing your arms, you you could do it. You, it was a, it was a liberation and a joy. And you know, it's it's so funny because it's such a um, what's the word? It's such a human desire, an innate human desire to feel that way, right? I think it is like in all of us that feeling of freedom in with with other people the feeling of freedom and being accepted by other people that's kind of i think what it what we all want and it it's like it sounds like it was available for a short period but why is it it's so unavailable now well you know it's like to get to that joy unfortunately we we did a lot of drugs to try yeah i was going to say right we can't ignore that fact because yeah. um it seems like there. So, what is the role? What was the role of drugs? How important well, was drug taking or whatever to the spirit of the place? Well, when drugs, if they work for you, which they didn't for me after a while, but it made you feel like you were a part of. It just, you know, it it was like it took away all the bad feelings, and then it can also take away all the good feelings. So that's my message: is is you know right natural high is so much better. So, and and why we feel that now is because again, you just get rid of all the jealousies and the defects and all the things that block you from that pure joy. 
you mm -hmm. that's what studio 54 was it was experiencing pure joy mm -hmm. yeah i i yeah i'm not sure i mean i know drugs was a big part of it and i also know that from taking drugs and doing illegal things to, with a group of people it's kind of fun just because of like you're all in it together doing this bad thing but i don't you know i think people can can feel that way with drugs without drugs and you do too obviously so um how like so what like so is studio 50 we only have seven minutes left and i just want to get down to the essence of like so has it defined your life did it defined it defined your life for a while did you wind up having a family or anything or getting married or anything like that or what no, I, no, I, I never married. I kind of, um, you know, okay. Being single yeah. those women, but I have some great nieces and nephews. I have a fabulous goddaughter. I have three incredible brothers and, you know, just have a lot of really good friends. Did the studio define me? No, but there is so much interest to it now that I realized, you know, that it was a, a privilege and a, an opportunity to work for something phenomenal. Mm -hmm. well, I remember we interviewed Philip Block, who was a stylist, a very famous stylist, and he goes, it's like the Follies, you know, so it was like this, this era that right. we experienced. And so... Or I remember when they were letting us go, when we realized that, you know, Steve and Ian were going to, after they had left, I remember somebody said, the, the John Kadama, who was working for Steve and Ian said, you know, you'll, your life will never be the same for working here because we experienced something on a mm -hmm. level that just... Uh -huh. I was wondering if your, um, you know, your work for nonprofits and and charities and good or you know good org, you're you've done a lot of PR for good organizations that do good deeds and stuff like that. Do you think any of that was influenced by your experience at Studio Fifty Four, like having all that, and maybe even all the traveling before that you did as a kid, like all that stuff, kind of want made you want to do something, give back or something like that well this this is where i learned i used to think oh when i get joy of living i'll help and then i realized that you get joy of living by helping right 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 but do you think like you had that pinnacle of like well were you having fun the whole time or was it work for you you know maybe it was stressful Lisa, it was, uh, you know, the, the drugs that I did at studio, they, they didn't own me at that point because mm -hmm. it was high work in there. It was, mm -hmm. I mean, they just were so creative mm -hmm. and just, just, it's just working around that level of genius of creativity and to watch Steve with people, you know, and, right. he me. and like, he would want me to take like Neil Young, show him around the club. Like he, oh you my know, that God. Would, no, I mean, <laughs> that wasn't stressful. No, no, no. Well, for some people it would be though. No, but you know, and you talk about creativity and I think that's such an important thing and the creativity that I think probably um, was part of the, you know, what, whatever the wherewithal that people had that got picked to get in there, but also the creativity of the club was like nothing anybody had ever seen and really hasn't seen since. Do you think like everything seems like kind of a copy of that now in a way, right? There isn't like a new paradigm 
of no, what a club is. No, and we just interviewed um, Karen, who I mentioned, Scott and um, Richie, who were the Ian's dream team. They're, they're, we're running an interview on them. This it might be over, but if you go on our Facebook page, mm -hmm. The Myra Show, and you see the, the interview with, with the, the, there's five of us, but it's Karen Bacon, Scott Bromley, and Richie Williamson. There's pictures of the parties that Karen did. Oh, okay. You can, you can look at, I, I mean, she, in, in the hallway, the corridor of joy, I used to call it, there's mm -hmm. like grand pianos. I mean, you just, money was no object, nothing, they're limitless. Their creativity had no limits. Right, because they they wanted to realize their vision. They weren't like thinking about how we're making money. We have something that they were in love with doing it. And that's probably what came through. So we only have uh, three minutes left and I wanna make sure we get in more information about you. And before they do, we do that, I wanna thank all, everyone for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm here every Thursday, two to three, and you can look up my archives on the radiofreebrooklyn.org. Uh, website and um, check us out. We're very involved with the Wall of Lies right now. We have so much great programming this afternoon. You've got to stick around. And Myra, I just want to get back to you because I want, you know, give us a heads up about your radio show and the charities and stuff that you're involved in because we got two minutes and I want to make sure we get it in there. Well, first of all, I, I just saw the Wall of Lies last mm. week. Oh, you did? I, you saw I, it? I saw it. I went down there. Lafayette oh, wow. Yeah, I've I'll got I'll tell pictures. Phil. He'll be thrilled. I'll tell oh, Phil. He'll be thrilled. And I, I work with an incredible charity with a beautiful, lovely group of people. And we do uh, gift cards for the holidays because some of these foster kids will have nothing. So it's the FelixOrganization.org. Uh-huh. And then you can find out more about Studio 54 on the Mark and Myra page. And yes, we're on Facebook. Uh-huh. We are that generation. So it, it is on Facebook. And you can still go to the, you know, the Brooklyn Museum, Night Magic, and get a little piece mm -hmm. of what Studio 54 and was. And what, what's, what's the thing that you have in there that you're like, you got to check this out. Tell us what we should look for when we go there. That's yours. Well, the Norma Kamali sleeping bag coat. Oh, my God. Yeah. And... Also, when Steve got went to jail for in the tombs for two days over some small infraction, he took drink tickets with him and a pen, and he wrote what was going on on the back of those drink tickets. And I managed to hang on to about fifty of them. So there. Oh, so those are in there too. Another prized possession. And there's one more question I have to ask you. Is that an original Bob Gruen photograph of John yes. Lennon behind you in your apartment? Yes, Bob gave that to me. I actually gave Bob a party at, at Studio 54. It was one of the first uh, galleries, uh, an exhibit at Studio 54. Oh. And um, I think it was like in 81. It was after Stephen Ian, but I did parties for the second incarnation so that he gave me that back then oh that's fabulous um and i also want to let people know that uh thursday at today at i think it's at six there's going to be a zoom conversation that you can get tickets for between norma kamali and Ian Schrager. thanks okay Dr. Lisa gets shit. Dr. Lisa gets
sangue. 